Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're glad you can join us. Uh, Today, we've got another edition of Brussels Sprouts Live uh, because we're pretty excited about this episode. As most, if not all of our Brussels Sprouts listeners will know, NATO convened, I think about a year ago, a year ago in December, an expert group to assess ways to strengthen the political dimension of the alliance. I think we all, the NATO Knicks, and I think probably especially Jim, has been waiting with bated breath. Uh, And the group has very recently finally uh, released the report uh, that came out of that reflection process, a report called NATO 2030, United for a New Era. And I'm going to cut straight to the chase because we're so excited to welcome one of the co-chairs of that expert group, Wes Mitchell. So Wes, welcome. We're so happy to have you with us. Well, thank you, Andrea, and thank you, Jim. I'm a huge fan of Brussels sprouts, so this is a real treat for me to get to spend time with you both today. And I do want to say at the top how much I appreciated um, uh, your support, and in particular, some of Jim's inputs along the way uh, in what I think made for a pretty good report. So I'm I'm happy to be on the line and looking forward to this discussion. Well, wonderful. I am going to do... Oh, go ahead, Jim. Go ahead. I just wanted to jump in and just... uh, uh, just tell Wes uh, how much we just really respected what he did in terms of being a co-chair here. And I, I think it's important to acknowledge that because it's a hard job, not just gathering that data and talking to people day in and day out, making it work, but under, you know, all of the stresses and tensions and all the politics of working NATO within NATO among all the allies, it's tough. It is really tough. And I just think it's important to acknowledge publicly Wes here in Washington, your tribe, we really, really respected what you did. And um, and I think, quite frankly, uh, to all you historians out there, this will overtake Harmel. This will be used in the coming years as the bar to be met by future studies. So congratulations on that. Thank you for that, Jim. That means a lot, if even half of it's true. <laughs> all right, so maybe what we can do, I kind of just to rewind things to go back in time. So Stoltenberg announced this group, I think it was in December a year ago. Uh, and I wonder, Wes, if you can kind of just take us back to that time and remind us and listeners um, what the reflection process was responding to. So why was it that this whole process was initiated to begin with? Well, of course, the the spark plug, so to speak, was a comment that the French President uh, Macron made in December of last year to the effect that NATO was brain dead. I think that's what got the most attention, and it did act as a prompt or help to create the opening. I think um, Stoltenberg would, in any event, have convened a expert group of some kind on the 10-year mark of the Albright-Vandeveer process, uh, the group of experts from 2010. But uh, I just look at it as, you know, President Macron gave us the, the gift of this opening or this prompt and a sense of urgency um, to assess, just like you said, Andrea, to look at the political dimension of the uh, NATO alliance. And specifically what, so when, when uh, Stoltenberg approached each of us, the 10 experts, What he asked us to do was very specific. And in that sense, it was different from Albright's mandate 10 years ago. He asked us to uh, uh, provide recommendations to him by the end of this year, so ahead of any summit in the spring of next year, on strengthening the political dimension of of NATO. And specifically, the three objectives were uh, recommendations to strengthen uh, the political role and tools of NATO with regard to emerging threats, number one. 
Number two, to strengthen NATO's uh, political uh, cohesion and unity. And number three, to strengthen NATO's uh, political consultation and decision making. So that so that was our uh, uh, that was our tasker. And so one of the things, I mean, we all kind of recognized a lot of the political fissures, political divisions in the year leading up to the reflection process. And I, so I want to jump into a little bit of the substance of the report. And there are some really excellent pieces to this. But one of the lines in the report read something like, NATO critically needs political convergence on first order questions. And I think that reflects the fact that there was a lot of kind of fissures and divisions within the alliance. As you got into this process, where did you find that the gaps were the widest? What, what, what do you, where did you think that the fissures um, or areas of divergence were the most uh, significant or the, the hardest that you thought to overcome going into the process? Well, that's a great question. And, um, uh, you know, I think a lot of fissures or cleavages make the headlines in the transatlantic relationship. And that's always been true, but especially in the um, last few years. And so I think we tend to think of those things. So uh, we mentioned, for example, Macron's uh, comment about NATO bring bring did. That grew out of something very specific, which was U.S.-Turkish coordination over Syria, which the French uh, were expressing um, a desire to have seen that aerated somewhat more fully in a NATO setting. Um, let me give you one big one that I thought, um, I think, has been under the surface for NATO for many years and is still there. Um, I'm optimistic on it, but it is very much a fissure. It's not one that makes the headlines frequently, but I think it's a fissure that um, is sort of embedded in the different approaches that, that certain allies take to NATO. And it is a difference in mindset about what, a, what NATO exists to do or what it exists to be. What is its primary role? And um, it's, a, it's a philosophical as well as political difference that I think is rooted in the history of the different allies going all the way back to the early 1950s. There are some allies who I think see NATO as being uh, the, 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 the principal platform for security in the Euro-Atlantic area, and, and pretty much anything that touches on the national security interests of allies is fair game for discussion and coordination. Uh, that's kind of one school of thought. And the other is more, um, I think of it as sort of break glass in case of emergency that NATO is there to be a fireman and that uh, it, 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 in normal times, there may be a lot of national security issues that aren't taken to NATO for discussion, that it's rather sort of an emergency force that is called forth in the worst case scenario. And I say this not to endorse either of those views. I think you probably know which view I have, and I think you know where the report came out. But I think that's one of the biggest underlying um, fissures or just differences of view on what NATO exists to do. And that often spills over and affects how allies approach NATO and, 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 and think about using it. And it's often something that's embedded, uh, that, that, that's not explicit in how allies talk about the alliance, but it's right beneath the surface. And I think it explains a lot of the differences um, that have existed actually for many decades inside NATO. Uh, well, that's fascinating. You know, that, I agree with that having existed there. And it's going to always be, I think, as you point out, it's going to be something that's going to mark a lot of the discussions in, for years to come is this, those, those, those uh, perspectives. But let me, let me ask you uh, about a, um, 
what you, you know, you did, you and your team did quite a lot of outreach. You talk, I know in Washington, you talked to just about everybody, lots of think tanks, lots of, of groupings of people. You went all over the, um, all over the Alliance and talked to others in Europe and elsewhere. Um, as you talk to people, uh, and uh, you certainly got a lot of conventional wisdom as well, stuff you've heard over and over again from various allies, but did you ever run into a view or perspective that, not necessarily off the wall, but it was kind of a unique perspective uh, coming that you hadn't heard before? Uh, maybe some ideas out there that were like um, not conventional wisdom and something that um, uh, made you really kind of reconsider or, or, or think differently about NATO based on what one person or maybe two or three people might have said that was a bit different? Well, I'll give you a couple. Um, one of them, and, and I won't name any names, but we had a um, retired senior German military official who's very impressive, who uh, briefed the group. And he talked about NATO uh, as an alliance that will have to uh, find a way to have more of a global division, be, be the platform for a global division of labor between the United States and Europe in an era where we're dealing with both China and Russia. And it, uh, I um, have had similar, a similar um, approach or inclination in the past, but I think he brought to the group a sharpness, of, a sort of a realization of just how much of a pinch in strategic prioritization and resources NATO may find itself in when it has a militarily assertive and very powerful China emerging that we're not accustomed to, that may have the commanding heights and some technologies uh, on one hand, and at the same time having to deal with a Russia that is vengeful and aggressive in ways we didn't expect in the 90s. And I think he helped to paint for the group the picture of a very um, realistic near-term scenario where there is a greater stretch in our attention and resources. And I think from that, um, that and other similar briefings that we got, it, it really helped congeal the group around a vision of an, uh, the Alliance as a platform that um, is, gonna, is gonna have to navigate a very strate different strategic environment than we're accustomed to dealing with, either in the immediate post-Cold War era where we, NATO didn't really, the West didn't have a peer competitor, uh, and we could talk about, you know, um, uh, out of area operations became obviously the kind of the pole in the tent, but also very unlike uh, the period since 2014 where we were overwhelmingly focused on Russia. That was one. Um, uh, I think um, another one was was the kind of the the the, the, in, the in our consultations with private sector voices, uh, and I won't again, I won't name any names, but pretty bright people out there from both US and Europe that we were able to bring in to, uh, uh, from large technology firms to, to uh, help us understand what the technology landscape will look like over the next 10 years. And I think that was um, a, sort of a moment of realization or sort of, it was a sobering moment for some member of our, members of our group to really come to terms with how much the technology environment is gonna change, or let's say emerging and disruptive technologies will change a lot of what we take for granted in NATO about how you win on the battlefield or how you uh, keep secure communications or um, uh, protect your critical infrastructure, that landscape is changing in ways that are far more dramatic than anything we've experienced maybe since the, the dawn of the atomic era. Uh, so it's, it's a revolution in technologies that's underway 
that changes the way we have to talk about and think about security. I think those were the big two jolts uh, that helped focus our group on what ended up becoming some of sort of the light motif of the report. Yeah, one of the my favorite lines, I think, um, was the this phrase that you all used in the report, era, an era of strategic simultaneity, which I thought would like really encapsulate so well so well what you were just saying, the fact that there are numerous now interconnected threats that NATO is facing all at the same time. So I thought that that particular phrase was really, um, it, it stuck with me. Well, I'm, I'm glad it did. And I, I'll just say one word on that, that um, it, what we wanted to try to convey, and I hope it comes across in the report, and it's why we, we use the term strategic simultaneity, it goes back to this theme that I just mentioned of attention in resources and attention between two very large powerful, often aggressive actors, Russia and China, are obviously very different kinds of threat or challenge. But we, when we say strategic simultaneity, we're wanting to convey something different from when we often hear in NATO, the NATO lexicon, a 360 degrees, 360 degree approach. Um, of course, there's, there's validity to the fact that, that, that the challenges are coming from many places, not just Russia and China, but they're there are trans, transnational threats and, and pandemics or climate change or what have you. But, but, but we, want, we wanted in the group to signal um, a break from the 360 degree language because to us that conveys a kind of two azimuths. Um, you know, on all sides of you, you have pressures bearing down. And in some ways, I think it, the, the language about 360 uh, degree threats, it, it, it lulls us into sort of an a-strategic approach to things, where we're, we're almost, it's sort of a strategic amb ambidexterity, where we're kind of doing everything at once. Of course, there is some, something to that, but the report is, is trying to signal, when we say strategic simultaneity, we mean an environment where NATO may often have to sequence, um, prioritize and sequence the, th the big things that it's doing without necessarily losing its eye on the other things, but but also not giving equal weight to all of the threats and challenges that it, it faces at one time. So it is deliberately in the report an effort at prompting NATO towards more of, of, a, of a reflective strategic approach to things because the, these are big challenges and threats that will often require sequencing, staggering, prioritization, et cetera. That's, so um, th th I, I think that's it's re that's really fascinating and, and really, I think, a useful frame. It's a, it's a, it, I think it provides a, an important kind of lens on looking at the problem set. One of the things, Jim, do you want to jump in now before we, before no, I no, change? I would never want to divert you from your target ever. No. I do have a quick question before we go on to everybody else. So I know they're leaning forward into their computers, but, uh, but uh, I do have a quick question, but you go and then I'll go. Well, one thing I wanted to get at too, and maybe we'll get at this through some of the question and answer too, is kind of looking at all that's new in the main findings in particular. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that's new in there that hasn't been addressed so kind of directly. China's the obvious one. But one of my pet issues, um, one thing that I've been really interested in that is in the key findings is the cooperation between NATO and the EU. Uh, can you talk a little bit about kind of what gap that you, you know, that that particular key finding is addressing. Um, it, it, it is going to be increasingly important, as you note, that the EU has a different toolkit in addressing some of these issues um, in some cases that may be even more effective or more applicable than the tools that NATO has at its disposal. 
So if you talk a little bit about that, and I think a closely like related, maybe a little bit tangential question is in this discussion as NATO is, is needing to work with other organizations, other stakeholders, was there much uh, discussion about the Indo-Pacific allies in particular and what NATO needs to do on that front as well? So broadening beyond the transatlantic partners. Yes, those are both great questions. I'll try to economize um, and answer them both directly. So on, on NATO EU, the the gap that I see is um, between, on one hand, the uh, publicly stated goals that NATO and the EU have, their their their, um, their level of ambition, so to speak, for what the relationship will look like in political terms, on one hand, and on the other hand, the reality, the day to day reality of that cooperation. So it became quickly apparent to the group in our consultations with the EU and and with NATO. There is no shortage of um, understandings between NATO and EU dating all the way back to the late 90s and the lead up to the Washington uh, summit, uh, for scoping out what their relationship should look like, um, outlining principles of cooperation, the aspiration to work together, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There's no shortage of those. But day-to-day NATO-EU cooperation does not live up to that standard. Uh, I think it, the group found that there is a lack of clarity at the highest levels between NATO and the EU of what of of where what the two organizations exist to do vis-a-vis um, -vis one another. How they, for example, deconflict when there is a, a significant question about who has competency for what. Um, and I think the net effect of that is it tends to push day-to-day -day cooperation down to the staff level. And it's often um, ad hoc, or maybe that's that's uh, putting it too strongly. It's often not as structured and systematic as it could be. And so that's why we uh, recommended, for example, at, at, the, at the earliest possible moment, probably at the NATO summit early next year, that there would be a meeting that included EU heads of state and a new effort to outline uh, what this relationship would look like. My personal opinion, this is not the group, so I want to be clear, this is just West talking, is that eventually NATO and the European Union need an umbrella political agreement to, uh, to, to, to replace the Berlin Plus format. That, uh, I mean, it's, it's actually very surprising that we've gotten as much tread out of those tires as we have. And I think it, particularly in the post-Brexit era, we will need it. But so that, that's the, the first point. The second on, on Indo-Pacific, it's, it's a great question and I'm glad you picked up on it. The report wanted to signal very strongly that NATO has a, a role to play in giving encouragement and support to like-minded states. And I think uh, front and center would be the uh, partners, the Indo-Pacific partners, uh, all, all of which are democratic states. Um, and we tried to spell out a platform for deepening cooperation in areas that have to do with the rise of China. So regularized dialogue on technological cooperation, pooling of R&D, et cetera. And that can be done either in the NATO plus four format, which I think is quite serviceable, um, or the NATO Pacific Partnership Council, or it could be done in a new format. I mean, the United States has a quadrilateral security dialogue that I think has, has, is very promising and uh, having NATO be party to that could be uh, a good step in the right direction. But finally, we also talk about India and getting India more involved, um, uh, ideally as a NATO partner. I think that's overdue. 
clearly uh, NATO has, uh, you know, India has a foreign policy tradition that's rooted in um, a certain degree of, of neutrality, and it's a, a very unique approach that India takes to the world, so we would have to be cognizant of that. But I think it could uh, benefit NATO to have a closer relationship with India as the world's largest democracy and already a close uh, informal partner in many, many fields. Uh, I think that that um, is, is in many ways an overdue development that I, I hope we will see in the coming decade. Yeah, we actually here in, at CNES in the Transatlantic Security Program, we've been talking about the NATO, NATO-India connection and hope, hoping to do some work on that front too. So I think that, that's spot on too. But Jim, over to you. Real quick, because then we, we want our audience to ask questions, but um, I just have to ask you, you know, you've been an expert and, and you've been working in this field for a long time, and uh, you were Assistant Secretary of State for Europe, which I think is really important. One of the most important jobs, I think, at the State Department. Um, I'm biased, but uh, but I but but you know, you went into this uh, this work with uh, NATO doing this study uh, with certainly a certain set of assumptions and perspectives and feelings about things. At the end, you've gone through all this now, you're at the end, your report's been written. Have you had any changes in your own personal perspectives or outlook on some of these issues compared to where you were uh, four years ago, say? Have you, has this changed you and your perspectives at all about NATO, Europe, US? Well, it, if anything, I think in, in, in some areas, I am more optimistic than I was expecting to be. Uh, at the end of, of the process in that, um, well, I'll just give you one really big example that stood out to me. Con- U.S.-European convergence on China, I think, is a lot more advanced than is commonly understood or reported on. Um, I think at the same time, I, I, it's more clear to me just the scale of challenge that, that lies ahead of us. I think, um, and the report really tries to capture this, it's more clear to me now than it was four years ago or even a couple of years ago, that this era, whatever you want to call it, in the U.S., it, you know, NDS calls it era of great power competition. Europeans talk about it as era of systemic rivalry. I think it's a fundamentally different era than what we've experienced since the end of the Cold War. And in think tank settings, we, we talk so much about so many things that maybe um, it, it's, it can be difficult to capture the scale of a change like this. But I, I think it's going to be a major uh, step change for NATO. And um, I think that it will require a lot of political unity that um, will be challenged internally as well. If anything, I probably came out of the exercise, um, number one, more convinced that there is a need to revisit the fundamentals of the transatlantic bargain, sort of how burdens and benefits are, are shared equitably within the alliance in order for it to be politically sustainable if we're dealing with both Russia and China. Um, I, I think I also came out of it with a better appreciation for how much of a challenge um, European strategic autonomy will be for NATO. Um, I think it's that that's acknowledged in the report, but it's gonna that will require continual monitoring and a lot of diligence on the part of leaders on both sides of the Atlantic to make sure it it, it occurs in a way that does not come at the the expense of the glue of NATO. So th- those would be kind of just just a handful of things that if it maybe have become more clear to me with the passage of time. Great. So we are going to turn it over to questions from participants. Um, Again, just a reminder, if you want to ask a question, please use the raise your hand function at the bottom under participants. And if you don't want to read your question directly, feel free to send it in to either Jim or myself and we can read it out loud. 
Um, but to start the Q&A, we actually had someone phone in a question earlier, Wes. Um, Ambassador Heffron uh, had a question for you, so we're going to kick it off with that. And he said I could read it to you. So he, uh, Ambassador Heffron says, Wes, we've always stressed that NATO is an alliance of values, not just security. Assume you agree. That being the case, how could we handle democratic backsliding in the alliance, for example, in Hungary? That's a great question, uh, and it's good to hear from, from you, Ambassador Heffron. Um, so it won't surprise you to hear that in the reflection uh, process, the question of the internal health of democratic institutions inside NATO allies was a really um, big subject of, of conversation and debate. And obviously, this is a consensus report. Um, and, and so we, you know, where we came out reflects the 10, the views of the 10 members of the group. But we did have very intense discussions about internal dynamics. And, and this question, I think it's, you've asked about it about Hungary, but I think you could broaden it because there have been concerns in recent years about the health of democracy in, in Turkey as well, or other members of NATO alliance. Um, and, you know, I think the group um, agreed early on that we would not skirt the hard issues but we also agreed early on that in keeping with the tradition of the Harmel report, uh, the 1956 Wiseman report, that this, the report would not be a naming and shaming exercise. So we don't single out any allies by name in the report. And I think that was prudent because um, the job of the report is to help address, uh, or let's say help buck up, um, bolster political cohesion in in nato and you don't want a report like this to become a tool of the opposite um that it actually deepens cleavages or creates a messaging opportunity for uh you know rivals of nato russia or china uh to to exploit cleavages within the within the alliance but that doesn't mean that the report avoids the hard subjects and uh, you know um we, we, the report looks in great detail at erosion of democratic standards. It's in the uh, analytical framing of the text, but it also comes out in a lot of our recommendations. And um, just to give you a couple of examples, I think first and foremost, the creation of a Center for Democratic Resilience inside NATO. In my view, this is an overdue um, investment of resources on NATO's part. That if NATO is an alliance uh, of Euro-Atlantic democracies, I think it makes a great deal of sense that it be able to offer support and resources to allies for protecting their democratic institutions the same way that it offers um, teams to help uh, when allies are under hybrid or cyber attack. So I thought that was a very useful recommendation. And I hope that the, uh, the NAC will take that up. Another one is the report calls for an annual report that would be issued by the uh, Secretary General on the political health of the alliance. And I think that would provide an opportunity, almost kind of for you know, an annual state of the alliance report or presentation. It provides an opening for the Secretary General to review the health of uh, democratic institutions inside the alliance. Um, other ancillary aspects of this, uh, you know, the report uh, calls, for example, for um, NATO to erect stronger barriers to the practice of allies forming military technological relationships with Russia and China. I think that's incredibly important because, and it often goes, the, the, that practice in some allies does tend to go hand in hand with questions about uh, democratic governance. Um, and, and one other I wanna stress that was important to the group uh, that I think comes across very strongly in the report is the 
tendency of some allies in recent years to act as kind of a single country um, impediment to consensus on, um, and it happens most frequently on partnership activities. Um, there are a handful of, of, of allies who probably make up 85 or 90% of all single country blockages. That's growing in frequency, and it often involves bringing in uh, bilateral disagreements between the ally in question and, and non-NATO allies, uh, and it gums up the gears of the alliance. So the report says loud and clear that practice, if it continues, is a gigantic threat to political cohesion and has to be dealt with. So when we uh, recommend elevating uh, single country blockages to the foreign minister level, uh, I think it does two things. Number one, if acted upon, it would um, impose a higher political threshold or cost. It would, it would, it, it would make it harder uh, for countries to uh, make this a common practice. But the second thing I think it does, um, and this is true of many of the other recommendations, it creates an opening for voices inside NATO who are concerned about, you know, who are serious about reform or concerned about the need to preserve NATO and um, uh, abide by core principles. It, it, it creates an opening to have a conversation that maybe otherwise couldn't be had. So I, I think the report does a good job of doing those things but doing it in a way that is stated uh, professionally and doesn't single out allies and, and create an opening for um, external parties, uh, Russia or China, to exploit and drive wedges. That was really helpful. And I just wanted to ask a quick follow-on question, because there have been some people who have called for even um, sharper kind of responses to the democratic backsliding. So people will talk about the qualified majority voting or some people have even called for the possibility of withholding NATO common funds or not conducting exercises on the territories of countries that are backsliding. Were those things that came up in your discussions and kind of how did you, how did you think about those types of options? Well, I made it a point in our deliberations um, to, uh, encourage our group to debate pretty much, I mean, well, not just this set of issues, but anything and everything. We erred on the side of candor. Um, we, I mean, Thomas, the uh, co-chair and I encouraged the group to fulsomely um, and candidly debate anything and everything. I also brought in a lot of external experts who helped frame kind of a menu of options for how we would deal with some of the more difficult issues. And a lot of what you just said, I mean, these were things that the group did debate. Um, I think, you know, it's important to remember this, this it is and was a consensus document. And there were many members of the group, not just from um, the allies that um, are often criticized in the media, but I would say a strong majority of members of the group who were not comfortable departing from what has been the traditional NATO approach to internal disputes or um, questions about uh, domestic uh, issues of allies. Historically, NATO has deliberately kind of stopped at a certain waterline in how deeply it gets into those issues. So you think, for example, of NATO and its history, we've had uh, in NATO's history, NATO allies who have had full-blown dictatorships you know, Greece under the colonels uh, for several years, Portugal at one point. Um, er, er, in the early days of the Cold War, I think, you know, you could go further and say Turkey or 
Spain or uh, at times maybe even in Italy. And uh, having governments that were of questionable democratic credentials. And traditionally, NATO stopped short of getting deeply involved in their domestic affairs. And our group was cognizant of that, of that precedent. So we tried to keep in mind what is the end goal. And it's certainly the goal that we were given in our tasker from Stoltenberg was to provide recommendations to strengthen political cohesion. The end goal, the objective, is to have an alliance that is um, as cohesive as possible politically in order to have a stronger defense and deterrence posture vis-a-vis rivals. And I think that has been in NATO's history a balancing act because you do want allies to have strong democratic institutions because they are, after all, in an alliance that has democracy and rule of law and individual liberty in the charter. But you also, as I said a minute ago, um, as an alliance, I think it's, it's, as a prudential matter, correct to avoid circumstances where uh, you're creating the very cleavages in your ranks that you would like to avoid or that could undermine cohesion that uh, external powers could use to deepen the divisions in the alliance. I think that's always been a balancing act for NATO. I think it will continue to be a balancing act. But I think our report didn't dodge the hard questions on this. We put some um, substantive recommendations on the table that I hope the NAC, as I said a minute ago, will examine those recommendations, but also use the fact that the report does broach some uncomfortable subjects, use that as an opening to have a conversation that maybe otherwise would not been likely to have occurred. Yeah, thanks, Wes. Um, okay, we have a question from Will McHenry. So Will, if you wanna come on in, I think someone will unmute you and allow you to ask your question. Great, can you guys hear me? We can. Great to see some uh, familiar faces. Hi, Jim, hi, Andrea, and hi, uh, hi Wes, good to see you. Um, I just have a, a quick uh, two-part question that I hope is related. So wondering um, what the report thought and what the group thought about the role of Turkey and NATO. You know, we see its quixotic behavior in terms of pushing back on Russian interests in Syria and now Armenia, but also purchasing Russian weapons, especially the S-400. So wondering on that note, um, relatedly, what also did the group think about NATO's role should be in the Caucasus? And do you think that will change given the recent conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia, given the significant role Turkey played in that conflict? Yeah, thanks, Will. Those are great questions. I mean, Turkey, I think in many ways you're asking the question that we've been we've been discussing on the last uh, two questions. <laughs> I think it is uh, it touches on some of these themes that um, obviously while the group was deliberating, there was a lot in the headlines on a day-to-day basis, the uh, public um, exchanges uh, between the leaders of France and Turkey. So we were not um, oblivious to that dynamic, but we also had a job that was to look out to 2030. Uh, That's what uh, Soldenberg had asked us to do. And so we really made a deliberate effort to gain altitude on the day-to-day debates in the NAC. And as I've said, we also, uh, in in keeping with the tradition of NATO reports all the way back to Harmel and and, and the Wiseman report, you know, this really is not an, the, an appropriate instrument for singling out allies or um, either, you know, to, to, uh, for, for uh, singling them out for reproach. Um, you know, at the same time, we uh, are cognizant of, of where some of those fissures lie. 
And I've just mentioned a few of the areas that we tried to uh, create recommendations that uh, the NAC could use uh, to uh, uh, address concerns about behavior that come up uh, from time to time. Uh, one of them is uh, democratic institutions. And so I've mentioned the Center for Democratic Resilience um, and the annual report. Uh, there's also a code of good conduct or a kind of accord that the report recommends NATO uh, enact that would uh, sort of revisit the founding democratic principles of the alliance and um, prevail upon allies to hold to those standards. Um, but as I said a minute ago, I think the political and military are cross-cutting, and you can't get at this issue without also looking at the military technological dimension of, uh, you know, allies that uh, enter into deep technological and military relationships with either Russia or China. Um, this is a very significant um, impediment to political cohesion in the alliance. And so the report is not oblivious to those things, and, and we don't dodge the hard issues, but we also keep in mind what the end goal is. The end goal is a NATO alliance that's stronger politically, that has deeper political cohesion. Turkey has legitimate concerns, uh, including about NATO's traditional approach to terrorism and the South, um, that are those are legitimate concerns that needs to that need to be addressed. Uh, Turkey has legitimate concerns about the difficulty obtaining military technology from fellow allies um, that I think has to be understood in the in the same vein that uh, we're looking at you know candidly at the at the problem of Turkey uh, going to Russia for for for, for non-allied military technology. So again, the report tried to strike a balance. Uh, but it keeps in mind the end goal and the, the task that uh, Stoltenberg has given us. And uh, again, I think hopefully it, it's not only the recommendations themselves, but the opening that that creates to have a different kind of discussion inside NATO than we could otherwise have. Great. Now I'm going to turn it over to Carissa for a question. Hey, Wes, thanks so much for being here. Um, I'm Carissa from the Center for New American Security. Um, one question I have for you. So data flows will underpin a number of emerging and disruptive technologies. How did the group think about maintaining NATO interoperability in the face of these emerging technologies, as well as given transatlantic tensions surrounding privacy regimes? Yeah, so the report devoted a lot of attention to uh, emerging and disruptive technology. I would say probably second only to the theme of China, emerging and disruptive technologies is probably one of the biggest kind of red letter set of findings in the report. And at, at, a, general, at a general level, the report basically says NATO needs to come to terms with the fact that competing with China in particular uh, to achieve dominance, you know, the, the, the Chinese effort to achieve dominance in key technologies, ha it has to be understood by NATO uh, as something that threatens the alliance's ability to win on the battlefield, but also secure its publics internally. So just elevating emerging and disruptive technologies um, to a concern that NATO proactively takes on board, I think, is one of the real contributions of the report. Um, <clears throat> data and, and the ability to um, extract and pool data is really at the heart of the EDT 
um, agenda and the, the ability to, to, to re retain innovation in key areas. Um, the size of data pools that the West can draw upon, um, the laws and norms governing how data is utilized, and what the group found when we, uh, in particular, when we consulted with leading figures from the private sector, is that really NATO is way behind in understanding the scale of the challenge in emerging and disruptive technology, uh, and, in, and, and in understanding how it can be used as a platform uh, to coalesce the countries of the West around a common agenda. Um, the European Union has to be part and parcel of that discussion. So the data uh, regulations that are in place, the uh, GDSP uh, uh, on the European side, uh, are a significant bur a bar barrier to greater uh, NATO uh, data sharing. And so we called for uh, the development of an EDT strategy that would include the use of NATO as a platform for uh, error rating uh, policies, uh, norms, uh, ethical considerations, regulations on any aspect of technological innovation that has an impact on security. Uh, the report also calls for the, the uh, development of an R&D um, sharing uh, facility within NATO, and we use the example of DARPA in the United States, uh, sort, of, sort of a North Atlantic DARPA, uh, as a way of prompting allies towards deeper uh, consultation. Um, but but I, I can't stress enough, and this came across really strongly in our consultations with the private sector, how much NATO needs to take on EDT as a subject not only for ensuring interoperability among allies, so for example, uh, the implementation strategy that is talked about in the report, but also for increasing IQ within the NATO international staff. Uh, and uh, I think in many ways, um, NATO and other international organizations and, and many Western governments lag behind in even understanding what's at stake or having the IQ and um, uh, talent within the organization to be able to keep pace with technological change. I think that'll be really crucial. Great. We'll do one last audience question, and I want to turn it over to Giovanna De Maio to ask a question. She's got something on nuclear security. Giovanna, do you want to jump in? Thank you so much uh, for this, uh, for the work you've done in uh, chairing the expert group. I think it's paramount uh, to do this now and for the challenges of 2020. I wanted to ask um, what you thought would be the main challenges that the Alliance group would be facing in the nuclear field. Um, We're talking about arms control and the rise of China, also like modernizing its nuclear apparatus, but was also thinking on what are the capability of the alliance in terms of uh, deterrence and what, what, where you think the alliance should head and should face first, as you were mentioning, what to prioritize. Mm -hmm. um, so just give me your sense on that. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for that, Giovanni. It's a great question. Um, the group spent a lot of time discussing nuclear issues broadly, but specifically arms control and strategic stability. I think, I mean, to answer your question directly, I think the single greatest challenge facing NATO in this field is the deterioration of the Cold War era arms control framework. Um, the report reaffirms the logic that NATO has pursued since the late 1950s 
of a dual track of basically effective defense and deterrence alongside efforts at uh, uh, dialogue uh, to help stabilize the external security environment. And the report breaks this, this subject down into kind of two categories. One is arms control proper or arms control and nonproliferation, and the other is nuclear deterrence. Um, on arms control, what I would uh, emphasize is the, is the stress that the report places on NATO um, reverting to the role that it played during the Cold War as a forum to debate the challenges to the existing mechanisms of arms control and to consult on future arrangements. Um, we take it for granted now that NATO plays a relatively minor role in arms control, but that has not always been the case. If you go back to uh, the, the uh, 1960s, for example, early 70s, after the Harmel report, uh, this was the period when the United States had lost nuclear superiority vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. NATO played a tremendously important role as a kind of coordinating platform where the United States could uh, uh, pre-brief allies on its approach to bilateral negotiations with the Soviet Union, even if those allies were not party to those negotiations. They helped to create uh, a gallery of concerns, you know, expressing their concerns to Warsaw Pact and, and to the Soviet Union that was absolutely indispensable to the success of the uh, efforts during the Cold War to create the arms control architecture that is now deteriorating. So I think, you know, the, the, the essence of the report is in some ways to call on NATO to develop those habits of mind, that muscle memory again, uh, to, to, to use NATO as a, a consulting platform on arms control. And remember, in the case of uh, uh, the Cold War, NATO's role in uh, arms control helped to pave the way for uh, the creation of OSCE as an institution. It helped to create the way for, pave the way for the Confederal Forces in Europe Treaty. Um, and again, a lot of the architecture that is now deteriorating, NATO helped to play a supporting role in making that possible. So I think the emphasis of the report is on seeing NATO play that role again for two big purposes. One, repairing the, arch the, the architecture and in some cases evolving it, uh, for example, the post-INF um, uh, discussions with Russia and, and efforts to extend New START, but secondarily to help uh, prevail upon China as much as possible to you know, start the discussion for bringing China into an arms control regime. So I think that's the main emphasis of the report. And, um, you know, it's, in some ways, I think if you read that section of the report, you really do come away with a sense of urgency of um, how much ground we've lost in uh, the last several years uh, and the, the, the hopefully pointing towards a, a role that NATO can play uh, in repairing some of that damage. Great, thanks Wes. Okay, so we always save the best for last. Uh, this is known as the Jim Townsend special. So over to you, Jim. Well, thank you. That I never knew that's what you guys called it with the Jim Townsend special. It um, sounds like an it sounds like an express train, the Townsend Express, um, or, or a sandwich. I don't know. <laughs> um, so you know, I uh, I what I like to do is ask uh, particularly seasoned 
uh, diplomats long in the tooth that we sometimes we pull aboard. That's going to get me in trouble saying that. <laughs> but, but folks, and I have them go back and reflect on their career and what they've learned since starting off in the Foreign Service, whatever it might be. But I'm going to, uh, you're not quite long in the tooth, West. You might think you are, but you're not quite long in the tooth. So I, I won't, I, I'll take that question. I'm going to reshape it and say, you know, what did you learn coming out of this, uh, this, this very intense time uh, that you spent with this group, uh, within the group dynamics, talking to uh, probably for on hours with individual members of the group or uh, outsiders, perhaps? What, what did you learn coming out of this process um, about your country? I mean, something new about a new perspective on the United States? Uh, that you didn't really think of, except this kind of shaped that, or other things that you might have learned uh, now that it's over, uh, that um, uh, that really has kind of added to your own personal library of knowledge and understanding of Europe and the United States and history. I know you're very big on the history part. Uh, I've had great discussions. So what did you add to your library of of history as a result of this process and perspective on your own country? That's a great question. It's a, it's, it's a flattering question that you would, would ask me to reflect on um, in, in kind of a big picture way. I mean, I, <clears throat> I guess, you know, one of the big takeaways for me at the end of this process is um, that in some ways uh, the transatlantic relationship has a firmer foundation for deep cooperation, both um, with regard to our, our vital interests and to the values that underpin our societies, than I think is commonly represented in the day-to-day reporting on whatever the crisis du jour happens to be in the transatlantic relationship. Um, and I say that, I, I'm not trying to say, come across as sort of hortatory or, um, you know, um, uh, willfully negligent of, of, of where some of the problems are in the transatlantic relationship. But it became even more clear to me through this process than I had realized in the past, just how much the United States and Europe need each other. Um, I think that's often lost in a lot of the back and forth over the latest public opinion polls or um, who doesn't like which leader. Um, and I think it's going to be particular, particularly the case in this new era that we're moving into that really, really will be radically different than what we've known in the recent past. And it's a, um, the, the, the need to balance China and Russia simultaneously. This is, a, this is in some ways, it, it, it's a challenge that creates a clearer and more compelling role for NATO than it's had at any point in the last 30 years. And I say that as someone who, you know, I clearly was, I've, I've seen a role for NATO um, prior to this moment, but I think you'd have to go back to the high point of the Cold War to find a strategic environment that so clearly compelled um, a set of countries with otherwise disparate uh, interests in some areas, at least economically, towards deeper collaboration. I think it also underscores for me what the really big task of our time is, and that is the consolidation of the, the political and strategic West uh, as early in this century as possible. And that came across even more clear to me, clearly to me through this process that you know, this is not a moment in, in history when you would want to see the West splintering or, or bifurcating to be, um, you know, an, a semi-autonomous Europe and kind of a United States that's going its, its own way. 
and, and I'm not saying that because I'm an Atlanticist. I'm saying that even if I were a cold-blooded um, realist or offshore balancer type, I would still look at the map and say, gee, with a rising China and a, and a, a vengeful, militarily capable Russia, we need alliances. And <clears throat> I, I, you know, that, that comes across a lot more strongly to me than it ever has. Secondly, as I said a minute ago, it's even more clear to me that we're at a moment when there needs to be an honest discussion about the weighting, uh, so to speak, of burdens and benefits in the transatlantic alliance. Um, I think there are voices both in the United States and Europe who, whether it takes the form of a more insularist strain of American thinking that I think is growing in both parties or in so some corners of the strategic autonomy crowd in Europe, those are rooted in basically the same thing, which is, you know, our geography, the geography of North America. It tempts us towards seeing ourselves as kind of a global island. The geography of Europe, I think particularly post-Brexit, seeing the, the continent of Europe as kind of a separate pole in, in world affairs. Both of those impulses are rooted in something similar. Uh, and I think it, it uh, for, for NATO to stay relevant, there, there will have to periodically be an, an honest conversation about the, the burdens that are being borne, whether it's in defense spending or um, in um, you know, how we balance Asia Pacific versus Europe and the United States. I, I think that conversation, you know, we can't just stay stuck in the rut of platitudes about the transatlantic relationship. Clearly those are important to us as Atlanticists, but we have to also be able to explain to our publics um, the nature of the, the transatlantic bargain, so to speak, in a way that, that stays relevant. So the final thing I'll say, and it's, it's also something that I um, ground a lot of optimism in, um, you know, clearly we're, we're, cut, we're, we're living through a very um, tumultuous political period in the history of the Western world. But I think this, this exercise, um, in some ways, it, it reinforced to me how the Western world has been through stormy times in the past. And I think um, in some ways, both in the United States and Europe, we have a debate underway about the future of federalism. And it's, there's a debate about it in the, that in the United States context, in, but also a debate about it in the European context that has to do more with the, the future of the European Union. I, I don't think that's a new debate. I think the history of the West, all the way back to the Middle Ages, has been about balancing sort of particularism or local, localism on one hand, and universalism or, or, or regionalism. And so in some ways, I'm um, more optimistic about our future because I think that's just been the history of the West that, you know, looking back at the Cold War era, United States and Europe had very stormy times, actually in some ways uh, stormier than those that we've just lived through, believe it or not. Um, and I think we're, we continue to be a, a community of countries that are bound together by interests and values. And if anything, I came out of this process a lot more optimistic than I went into it. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I, I just love that. Uh, I, I, uh, what a wonderful ending. Thank you. That's that. Uh, I think that says it all. Yeah, that was this was really wonderful, Wes. Thank you so much for joining us and talking through the report. It really is a fantastic piece of work, and as Jim said, we'll lay the foundation for the reflection pro or the strategic concept and, and the trajectory of the Alliance for years to come, I'm sure. So thank you very much for walking us through it and sharing all of this insight. I mean, that, that was a fantastic answer to the last question. Um, and so again, just thank you. And thank you to all of the guests who joined us for this episode of Brussels Sprouts.
Well, Jim and Andrea, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure and uh, I've appreciated it. I'm a great fan of Brussels sprouts and I appreciated the folks who joined us and the excellent questions. And thank you guys for reading the report. Um, I think we all share an appreciation for NATO and I'm hopeful that recommendations will make an impact for the good. So thanks for what you're doing and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Definitely, thank you. You've earned your mug. Look forward <laughs> to getting it.